0: Podcast for America is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses creates engaging courses presented by top professors and experts. One course I recently watched and enjoyed is The Great Courses series on turning points in American history. The Great Courses created a special limited time offer for listeners that see you guys out in podcast land. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including Turning Points in American History, at up to 80% off the original price. Don't wait go to thegreatcourses.com slash america. That's thegreatcourses.com slash america.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, and welcome to Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the preening self-celebration of human striving and shamelessness that is a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner calling in from an undisclosed location at MSNBC. In D.C., we have Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for The New York Times. Hi, Mark.
1: Hi, Alex. We won't talk about the bubble bath. (laughs) I mean, that's what I'm... I mean, it's undisclosed, so we're not going to talk about the bubble bath.
2: Wow. We are definitely not talking about the bubble bath. No,
1: no, there's no bubble. Anyway, go, go on.
2: Just keep on introducing people. Annie Lowry is off this week, but we have superb and super guest star Stuart Stevens, columnist with the Daily Beast, TV writer, and author of the forthcoming book, Last Season, A Father, A Son, and a Lifetime of College Football, and of course... Stuart is a former strategist for the Mitt Romney campaign. Welcome, Stuart.
3: Hi, it's great to be with you guys.
2: We have a lot to talk about, and we're thrilled that you're joining us, because this is the week we have all literally been waiting for, the official first debate of the Republican candidates for the presidential nomination. First up, we're going to talk expectations, not just debate topics and tie colors, but actual important stuff, like how many vindictives we can expect from Trump on such a night of uninterrupted time in the spotlight. And then we will get to the people not in the ring. For the candidates that did not make the top ten cut, aka the adults table, are their campaigns dead in the water, or is there still hope for playing the underdog card? And then at the end, a little segment we like to call, if I were in charge, where things get a little easier because we become the supreme rulers of everything and everyone. So let's start with the first topic. The Fox debate is August 6th. And I would ask you, Stuart, when you look at all the hullabaloo that has surrounded this date and who's going to be on the stage, what are your expectations?
3: Well, you know, uh, to my surprise, they're saying that they think they're going to get a really big rating. And I think you have to credit Trump with that. Otherwise, a, a debate with a bunch of candidates, none of whom are that well known in, in August, would probably be sort of a yawner. I think you'll know pretty quickly how it's going to go down, if they're going the moderators are going to call a tight strike zone or let people sort of make up their own rules.
2: What would your advice be to a candidate vis-a-vis Donald Trump? I mean, is the answer to engage or not? I don't
3: think anybody out there is running because Donald Trump is running. I think you have to just go out there and tell people why you want to be president and why you should be president. And if Donald Trump says something that is outrageous and you disagree with it, I think you're obligated, really, to disagree with it. But I don't think there's any points to be scored by uh, engaging Trump for the sake of engaging Trump. Do,
1: doesn't Donald Trump, wouldn't it behoove him to actually to be almost conspicuously boring to to prove that he yeah. actually has some baseline of sobriety?
3: I think if Donald Trump had a boring debate, that would be a win for him.
2: I guess I wonder, you know, when you're talking about 17 people running for office and the numbers are, we're talking about incremental Points, points on points, tens of percentage points that are going to qualify people to be right. on the main stage or not. Fox News is really, basically, Roger Ailes is going to decide, you know, whether it's Rick Perry or John Kasich on stage. I wonder what you think the repercussions of that are within the party.
3: Well, look, I think uh, you start with the premise that debates in the 2012 cycle started with very good intentions, and sort of spun out of everybody's control. Yeah, It, it became, I think, unseemly, the way that they were promoted, mm. uh, placed a serious business of picking a president into more of sort of a game show or worldwide wrestling, some of it. <laughs> um, so, any effort to try to bring some change and coherence to this, I think is positive.
1: <laughs> Enter Donald Trump.
2: Right.
3: I, I think I would have, you know, in my run-the-world thing, I think I would have put everybody in a hat and pulled out the names and sort of like a draw and had two debates, let them just line up on stage, however they came out of the hat.
1: You would put their names in a hat. You wouldn't actually Uh, literally put them in a hat because that actually would be very entertaining to sort of like, first of all, bring in a giant hat. Governor Gilmore, tell us what you think of what Governor Pataki just said. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Governor Dilmore, Governor Pataki. You know, I think Governor Pataki's actually been very impressive.
3: I was, I was hearing some interviews with him.
1: Are you working for him? This
3: forum, I think this 5 p.m. forum, may end up being very substantive and yeah. could be more substantive, given the be slightly smaller number of people. Mm. And... The, the flow of it could be could be more interesting
1: it, the best cable is done in the late afternoon as, which I, is why I can't agree more. which is why Alex is is you know my all time favorite host of any show <laughs> Stuart, are you working for anyone by the way? I mean we should probably just because we're so
3: responsible, we should probably ask you that uh, Our firm's working uh with Governor Christie. I've been kind of convincing a little on Wasab. Uh we did his races for Governor.
2: Can I ask, Stuart, I've always been fascinated by this, the, the sort of the process of debate prep. And granted, every candidate's different. Chris Christie probably has different strengths and, or definitely has different strengths and weaknesses than Jeb Bush when it comes to debate. But is there something that all candidates that you've seen thus far, a common problem or a mistake that they make that you kind of have to wean them off of or get them out of in advance of the debate?
3: You know, I think the biggest problem candidates tend to have is a desire for a line. and Like when Ronald Reagan said, there you go again, or um, I'm not going to take advantage of your age, or, and I, I, as someone trying to prepare candidates for debate, I really fight against that. You know, I think it's very difficult for actors to land lines, and they get paid a lot of money to do that. Debates are arguments, and I think... The best lines come out of the best arguments. And if you spend a debate thinking, okay, am I going to land this line, you get your head out of the argument, and it works against you. And the line, when it is landed, will will usually come with a thud because it will seem forced. And all these debates that we did with Governor Romney, invariably the best lines that he came up with were things that he came up with on the stage that we hadn't prepared for.
1: Like like the self-deport line that was... (laughs) was, Sorry, couldn't. Well,
2: also the role of the audience. I mean, I just feel like that... I mean, it just has such an outsized influence on who, quote-unquote, won. You know, I mean, it's just... I I couldn't agree. I would not have any audience. Yeah, can't we just
1: eliminate the audience? Can we actually... Let's do a preliminary, if we were in charge, and we'll sort of make a collective here, and we will, if the three of us were in charge, um, which could happen... Uh, we will eliminate all studio audiences.
2: The only person at this point who should actively be supporting a live audience is Donald Trump because that's how Donald Trump, you know I mean? He's the guy that plays to the audience. But beyond that, I mean, it precludes a, a truly sort of thoughtful analysis about what people said. It truly, I think, hinders a thoughtful debate because you're still, you're playing for those lines, you're playing for the applause. I mean, it's actually fairly outrageous.
1: That's a waste of time.
2: Yeah, exactly. Stuart, in, in terms of you know, as the field winnows, and candidates are preparing more to spar with a specific person, whether that is the incumbent president, as it was with Mitt Romney, or just fewer people on stage. How much sort of ninja-like preparation goes into thinking about the other guy, not so much your platform, but the other guy and how he speaks, talks, digests, argues, and debates?
3: Right now, when you have everybody who's pretty much within the margin of error, I mean, This is sort of a train wreck for the most part. I mean, everybody sort of bunched together. I think it would be a real mistake for someone to take on another candidate as a way to elevate themselves. But later, that will become part of the whole dynamic. But these are just much more introductory meet-the-candidate sessions.
2: On that note, we're going to take a quick break. Tweet us at Pod for America and let us know your thoughts about debate night, who you'll be watching. We'll be back in a moment. And now, this word from our sponsor
0: Podcast for America is sponsored by The Great Courses. Like so many of you, I love to learn for the pure pleasure of it. That's one of the reasons why I'm a fan of The Great Courses. I recently watched The Great Courses series on turning points in American history. It starts with the Great Epidemic that wiped out much of the native population of the continent, and then it works all the way through the Revolutionary War, through the establishment of the American government, through the Civil War, through women getting the right to vote, basically up to the present. The Great Courses' turning points in American history offers insights into events that shaped this country, including President Roosevelt's New Deal, the Watergate Crisis, and more. The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary, and it has over 500 courses on topics like history, science, photography, and more. Watch or listen with online downloads and streaming via The Great Courses' apps or on DVDs or CDs. The Great Courses created a special, limited-time offer for Podcasts for America listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including Turning Points in American History, at up to 80% off the original price. But hurry, this 80% savings is only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash america. That's thegreatcourses.com slash america.
2: We're back. Mark Leibovich, Stuart Stevens, and me, Alex Wagner. And Mark and I were talking during that commercial break about our very special guest, and Mark... Tell us what you were talking about.
1: Well, I, I'm sort of curious about a few things on Stewart. I mean, one, Stewart is, he's been described, you know, it's a cliche, but, I mean, is Renaissance man something you shy from? Is that even legal in Mississippi, like the term Renaissance man? But tell us what you have going these days, what you're doing. You're in Santa Monica. You sort of split your time between uh, Santa Monica and Vermont.
3: Um, well, you know, in the off, it's, it's still the off-season, but what I've always liked about political consulting was having an off-season. Uh, and he gave me a chance to pursue other things that I love to do, like writing. I am uh, working on a pilot for HBO, and I'm finishing another book for Knopf.
2: How do you how do you do it all, Stuart? Yeah,
1: man. How, how is this possible?
2: Give us some tips. <laughs> Southern
1: Renaissance men today can't have it all.
3: <laughs> or,
1: um, or, or can they?
3: I don't have a lot of hobbies. I, I tend to just uh, work a lot and do my crazy sports stuff. Well, that's, and, a, well, I was that's gonna, a lot of hobbies. I was going to say,
1: that's bullshit. It, it is not a normal profile of the media consultant of either party.
3: The interesting thing about politics, I think, is that you have to constantly learn. I think it's almost impossible in this business to sit out a cycle because it, politics just changes so much. We have a big, chaotic, tumultuous country, and... and voters are constantly changing. You know, in the other part of my life, you know, I've written these travel books, and there's a lot of similarities, I think, in political consulting and travel writing, because you're, you have to immerse yourself in another world and make it about not yourself, but what you're immersed in.
1: What's interesting about the media, certainly in 2012, and I think it's more so now, is there is absolutely no travel writing quality to it because nothing is immersive about it. It's all quick hits and going to the, the sort of lowest common attention span denominator. And I'm sort of curious to get your observation on whether you think this is improved or just continued to uh, spiral off the rails, you know. Well,
3: what I really miss, you know, if you go back and you read, you know, like The Boys on the Bus about the 72 campaign, yeah. It's very difficult now, given the just pure economics of it, to send reporters out to, you know, go spend a month in Ohio and two months in Ohio or uh, do what Haynes-Johnson used to do, which was just report on the race by not being with the candidate at all. You know, campaigns are very good at being boring, and I think that there's a great frustration with reporters when they're around candidates that they're not getting anything interesting. The candidates aren't really the story in most campaigns. I think. I think it's the voters.
2: And, and from the media standpoint, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that they're. I mean, the the focus is because in part it's drew, driven by speed. I mean, clicks. You want the most sensational thing you can get, which is probably going to be from a candidate, and decidedly not from a voter. So where there are resources, they're allocated towards following the candidate. The candidate wants to make themselves or herself as anodyne as possible to prevent any kind of soundbite from getting onto the Internet. And so you have an increasingly dwindling number of not local, base, not local reporters based in the, the media, main media markets flying out for a short amount of time to try and get some crumb, which is a decidedly despondent assessment of where we are in terms of the game, right? I mean, it has its effect on politics, too. I, think. I wonder, Stuart, what you think of how Hillary Clinton has managed her campaign.
3: You know, talking about other campaigns, you kind of end up in the position of calling Mad Dog and telling <laughs> Belichick what he should do. Okay. She has some very, very, <laughs> very smart people working for her. Um, they have to, to uh, chart their own path.
1: Oh, anandine, man. That's anandine. We should have an anandine button.
3: The campaign is clearly not Being working. so sober. <laughs> that way. Okay. They're let's spending the- more and more money, hiring more and more people and campaigning more, and they're going down. I would have predicted that Donald Trump going up would have helped her. She's kind of boring, she's sort of substantive, you'd think people would want that as an alternative. Her unfavorables are now the same as Trump. Now, but as a critique of the campaign, I I don't know know, what it is that I would say you need to do differently. Because you have to be really deep inside a campaign to know that. But I think that she's on track to lose Iowa or New Hampshire to Bernie Sanders. I'm very enamored with the 68 analogies where, you know, McCarthy didn't beat Johnson but weakened him and ultimately, you know, he he left the race. Um, I think that's very likely to happen, that Hillary Clinton won't be the nominee and that someone will be the nominee who's not in the race. Really? Who is that?
2: Is that Joe Biden? It
3: could be Joe Biden. It could be Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren. No instinct and urge is stronger in politics than to hold on to the White House. And when you have Hillary Clinton now losing to the top three Republicans, and no one is really attacking Hillary Clinton. No one's running a campaign against Hillary Clinton. It is a true statement that she has not acquired a new voter since she started her campaign. She had more voters in January. She had more voters last month. That's a losing trajectory. And I think it's one thing for someone like Elizabeth Warren not to get in the race when she's dislodging Hillary Clinton, I think it's another thing for her to get in the race. When she's saving the White House for the Democrats.
1: Interesting. So you actually think that she could be electable? I mean, I mean, she would because she would be dislodging Bernie Sanders at 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 any point, at least if it happens soon.
3: Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Really? I mean, it depends on who Elizabeth Warren turns out to be, but but sure. Or Joe Biden could get in. John Kerry could get in. Um. You know, there's there's 317 million Americans. You ought to be able to find someone to run for president. Um.
1: (laughs) Can I jump to just to the GOP for one? Just there is a line that that you, I think Mitt Romney has attributed to you. I mean, he's used it before about how he and I think the people around him in the last go around were frankly stunned that they were able to just win the nomination given that it's a, what is it, it's a, it's a southern populist. The party's
3: increasingly evangelical, increasingly southern, evangelical. um, and, and increasingly populist.
1: Right. And he is a northern aristocrat. Mormon, something like that. Maybe an aristocrat's under in there. Anyway, oh, my, my point League. is, Ivy League, some, something you know that is not Southern populist or evangelical. First of all, do you still think that that's true? Or, and, and if that's true, I mean, where do you sort of put Donald Trump? Listen,
3: I, I think Donald Trump is um, a populist protest candidate. Mm. And protest candidates usually succeed in direct proportion to the degree that people think they won't win. Hmm. And when they actually start thinking about them winning, they usually have a ceiling. I mean, that's what happened with Perot. I think that the easiest thing in the world is to say you're for someone in a poll. The hardest thing is to get someone to vote for you. You know, I thought Governor Christie said about Donald Trump, was pretty right on. He'll be as serious as he wants to be. But he's going to have to be serious, I think, to become a serious candidate. I personally believe, and this is an opinion unburdened by evidence, but that he won't go to the ballot in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire hmm. that he will, he will he will drop out before then
1: why would he do that just some kind of he'll be forced out or he'll just decide
3: one to, thing he'll... about being on the ballot is uh, you get a number you get a score donald trump tends to be someone who likes to say that he wins yeah um <laughs> and and politics i was it's, very impressed you know you know if he won or not
2: Plus, I, I just think Donald Trump doesn't seem like he has the discipline to carry through on this whole campaign thing. I mean, he did spend the days before the debate in Scotland at a golf tournament, <laughs> which is not typical behavior as far as I know.
3: The degree of difficulty involved in running for president, as opposed to anything else in politics, you can enter the process humble, you can enter the process arrogantly, you're going to leave it humble. It will humble you. And I, I just don't think that Donald Trump would enjoy submitting to that process.
1: I think if nothing else, Donald Trump will make the process far more classy. <laughs> it's going to be—we will all emerge from this <laughs> Definitely. In a far, as a far more gonna, classy country. We're
2: going to come out of this with a much better opinion of ourselves after uh, the absolutely. Trump candidacy is yes. over. We this will, not, good, we, we will uh, not be humble. Listen, I—, I um, You know, Al Sharpton ran
3: for president Was in all the debates in 2004 for the Democrats, and Republicans arrived. As you can
2: imagine, Stuart, I have nothing but the utmost respect for my colleague, Reverend Al Sharpton, and this seems like a good point to stop that conversation and wrap up with our weekly segment, Stuart, which I'm sure you'll have lots of thoughts on. It's called, If I Were in Charge, and effectively... You could say what you would do in any with, with respect to basically anything if you were in charge of the world or the universe.
3: Well, if I was in charge of the universe, I would stop this crazy process of changing the Olympics to a different site for every Olympics. It's totally out of control. We've learned that the Winter Olympics is going to be in Beijing, where you can't breathe and there's no snow. It's crazy. It's disrespectful to these wonderful world's best athletes that are gonna spend years training. Uh it's a corrupt process. I would have the Summer Olympics in one place where they like to do summer sports and it's a good place and there's a good quality of events and good air quality and I'd have the winter Olympics in a place where they like snow and they have snow. And make it about the athletes, not about the process of bidding out the different places. <laughs>
2: Um, I'll just say my, my what I would do if I were in charge is, on the debate stage, I would have a five-minute written essay that each candidate had to complete during two commercial breaks and then submit to be read out loud. Hmm. Because I actually, when we're talking about Stuart being a renaissance man, I think writing, the constructing of a sentence is an important thing for our commander-in-chief. It's an important skill for the commander-in-chief to have. And I also think it reveals a lot about personality. So I'd add a written portion to the debates.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. I do, too. Um, Staying on the debate theme, since this is debate week, I would, instead of devoting a segment, and I don't know what Fox's plan, but instead of devoting a segment to closing remarks or opening remarks, which I think is always very boilerplate and not that useful, I would designate one segment and call it the heckling round. Um, There would be no studio audience, as we've established earlier on in this podcast, but you could open up the floor to the other candidates heckling while the designated... (laughs) Speaker is, just get is allowed. It all out then. Yeah, just like while you. I mean, it could be even be a closing statement. But have the sort other sort of a
2: primal, le- scream. The primal scream. scream. well. Well,
1: you'd want it. it. You would want to be heard. I mean, you would want your heckles to be heard. So, and, and you would sort of draw straws. I mean, you. I mean, whoever would go first would probably be heckled more. But I don't know. I think that would be interesting and and perhaps um, cathartic. Maybe cathartic and and also we would it would be revealing.
2: Heckling essays and two outstanding olympic sites we've learned Mm. a lot on this podcast for america
1: we even have a heckling round of the olympics
2: we sure in Mm -hmm. one place as long as it's in one city where the 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 air for heckling is good the altitude for heckling is good and the, the heckling community is a good one that unfortunately is all the time we have for podcast for america thank you Stuart stevens for entering the lion's den and emerging victorious it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
3: It was great fun. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks also to our producer, Jocelyn Frank, and as always, Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And again, Mark Leibovitch will answer all your emails one by one.
1: Personally. Thank you for all of them, by the way.
2: And yes, we do actually read them, everyone who's written one. Thank you. We appreciate them, and we're trying to listen to every, every suggestion that you have. If you like us, please be sure to tell a friend or two or three or four and subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And do not forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show. For Stuart Stevens and Mark Leibovich, I'm Alex Wagner in New York. Until next time, thanks for listening.